out of the thieves, we're out of their pit, we're out of all of the metamorphoses, and we're into something even wilder. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow up through Dante's masterwork comedy. Man, do I say that enough? Well, we do. We slow walk, and we're slow walking in this episode. We are in Canto 26 of Inferno. We're just going to do 12 lines, lines 13 through 24 of Canto 26, so truly slow walking. This is important. It's a poetic interlude between the pits. We have come up out of the thieves, and we're about to descend to the eighth pit of the eighth circle of fraud in Inferno. If those numbers still don't make sense to you, you probably should go back and catch up to us. There are 156 episodes behind us. You could catch up and get to where we are. But this is a little interesting bit, a little 12-line poetic interlude between two incredibly over-the-top performances, one with the thieves and one that lies ahead of us. So without anything else, let's just read these 12 lines. They're my English translation. It's rough. It's not in Terzarima. It doesn't attempt to rhyme. I'm attempting to kind of get as close to the Florentine as I can, even though I'm making decisions along the way. Of course, it's not perfect. Get yourself a facing page translation to be perfect. You can find this translation on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com, where you can also drop comments about this very episode. Without anything else to say, let's just do it. Canto 26 of Inferno, lines 13 through 24. We left there, and along those stairs that had made the rocky outcrop for our first climb, my guide hoisted himself up and pulled me after him. So we strolled along on our solitary way among the slag and the rocks along the ridge. Our feet couldn't make their way without our hands. I was sad back then, and I'm sad again now, when I turn my mind to what I saw there. For that reason, I'll pull the reins on my talent more so than usually, so that it won't run where virtue doesn't lead it, so that if some good star or something even better has given me so much good, I won't dispossess myself of it. An interesting passage, right? They start to climb up off their balcony from which they have watched the metamorphoses of the thieves. And then the poet gives a little speech about what he's actually going to do and what lies ahead of us. And a little bit about the poetics. I think we should just look at this interlude carefully and work through it. The passage starts, we left there. So now we know we're leaving the pit of the thieves. Remember, they had come down a little bit on a ledge to be able to watch the thieves and all the metamorphoses that were happening down below them. Now we know that we're moving on to the eighth pit. And again, Dante always comes back to the story. Although we've been on a long jag about Ovid and Lucan and metamorphoses, we're back to the plot. So we left there. And it says, along those stairs that had made the rocky outcrop of our first climb, you should know there's a textual problem right there. And actually, I'm going to skip it. I just tell you, I've made a textual decision there. I could have said along the stairs that made us pale at our first climb or that the stairs were made out of the rocky outcrop of our first climb. 
it's a little bit of a textual problem. You can see the decision I made. I went for Rocky Outcrop. Let's just stick with that. I don't think it bears on the poetics of what's ahead of us. My guide hoisted himself up and pulled me after him. I just want to focus on the stairs or steps here. This is a reference, and I'm going to have to tell you this in advance because I can't come back to it long in the future when we get there. This is a reference to purgatory. Mount Purgatory is a giant mountain, clearly enough, with stairs that you have to climb to get up Purgatory. And it's an arduous climb. Here, before we hit what's going to happen ahead of us, which, believe it or not, is going to involve Mount Purgatory, we have an idea of an arduous climb up some stairs. Two different questions can be asked here. One, does Dante know what's ahead? Has he got the poem worked out that he knows what Mount Purgatory looks like, that he knows what it's going to be, that he knows there's going to be stairs and it's going to be an arduous climb? And so he's dropping the hint here because later in this canto of Inferno, Mount Purgatory is going to come up in a rather dramatic way uh, at the end of this canto. does Is he setting it here because Dante has the whole poem under wraps, or at least he's got it outlined in his head, or we can also say, is he going back and rewriting? When he gets to Mount Purgatory and he starts to understand it in the writing of it, does he come back into Inferno and make changes in Inferno? Probably not, given that Inferno is circulating before Purgatorio is circulating. This leads us to a potential conclusion that Dante is starting to see and has started to see his entire poem ahead of him. We'll talk more about that when we get further into the episode that lies ahead of us in the eighth pouch. But the reference to stairs here is an interesting reference given where we're headed. We strolled along on our solitary way, the passage says, among the slag and the rocks along the ridge. Our feet couldn't make their way without our hands. Let me just explain this line really quickly. The terrain is so rough that we can't just walk. We have to kind of walk scrambling on our hands because it's so tough to get up this ridge and then clearly the next bridge over the next pit is so rocky and so rough that you kind of have to scramble to get up and over it. It's an interesting disconnect. We strolled along on our solitary way and I translated it strolled because the verb there, prosequendo, is pretty loose. It's pretty like strolling. It's kind of passagiare related. It's not exactly that. And yet it is a kind of, mm, what am I going to say? Calm, <laughs> strolling verb. Stroll is a good word for it. Honestly, it really is. Is that disconnect important that you have a kind of strolling idea and then you also have a scrambling idea, and they're found in the same three lines connected to each other. It might say something about what lies ahead of us. There is a way you can stroll through it, but if you really want to pay attention, you have to scramble through it. Or how about this? Is that last line, our feet couldn't make their way without our hands, is that an allegorical line? We can't just do this 
by the normal way, but we have to kind of dig down with our hands to get a hold if we're going to figure out what lies ahead of us. Or is it a poetic line? Your feet, your poetic feet, can't make their way without your hands' work. That you can't just do this by counting syllables. You have to actually put some craft from your hands into it. All could be lying there in that line because that line then comes out to a statement about poetry as a whole. But before I get to that statement of poetry as a whole, let me just say one more thing. Dante always comes back to geographical structure. That is the genius of comedy. It is indeed a walk across the known universe. And so, no matter what tangent Dante gets off on, he can always come back to the geography of the walk itself, which is what he's done here. He may have gone flying out into craziness with Ovid and Lucan amongst the thieves, and yet here we're back to the geographical, <laughs> geological here with rocks and ridges, the geographical structure of the journey itself. How did I get from here to here to here to here? He's always going to come back to that, and that is typical of journey plots. Journey plots, think about mm, Fielding's Tom Jones. Journey plots, whatever they are, Tom Jones' journey to London, it may have a million side streets and a million digressions, does it ever, along the way. And yet, Fielding keeps directing it back to that moment of the of the journey itself. I got to get Tom to London so we can have all kinds of side passages about the man in the hill and we can have all bits about the Jacobite revolution and we we can have bits everywhere that are running all around us but in the end I got to get Tom to, to London and I got to make sure that journey happens that's here it is a good way to unify an incredibly complex work to make it a journey it's the way that let's say bunyan does in pilgrim's progress it's a great way to unify a complex work because the journey story allows everything else to hang in its place you, you can go back to torah for this when the when the israelites pass over the red sea or pass through the red sea as it parts and pharaoh's army is destroyed then we have this wandering around in the wilderness and we finally have them coming to the jordan and then the parting of the jordan and the crossing of the jordan and into the promised land but that whole story Inside of it holds the basis of the Jewish religious law. All of these giant passages about thou shalt not and thou shalt and how thou shalt wear clothes and the mixing of flax and linen and all the things that go on and the dietary laws and all that. It's all happening inside the story of a journey, the journey from Egypt to the promised land. Again, a, a very tight and smart way to take complex work and make it readable because you've got to always come back to the geography of the journey, which is what happens here, even though it jumps out to the whole question of poetry. 
the passage says, I was sad back then, and I'm sad again now when I turn my mind to what I saw there. So we clearly know that the pilgrim has looked now into the next pit, the eighth pit, evil pouch, malabolja, of this giant circular structure of fraud. So he's looked down into this eighth pit, and he's sad, and he's sad now um, uh, because it, 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 it affects him still now. So there's the poet again. I was sad back then, and I'm sad again now. There's Dante with the quill at the desk. And remember, we just came off a bit that mm, maybe my quill got out of control with the thieves. Remember that? Here's the poet again. And the poet is making a strange act of humility. After the poet has told Ovid and Lucan to shut up in previous passages, the poet is here making a contritional act of humility. For that reason, I pull the reins on my talent, or the word can also be translated in a modern context as I pull the reins on my genius more so than usually, so that it won't run where virtue doesn't lead it. It's not the romantic ideal of genius or talent as endless self-expression. Rather, this idea of Dante's, this poetics of Dante's, is that talent must be reined in by virtue or it must be held back so that it doesn't get in front of virtue. Whatever your native talent is, and his is clearly writing, the comedy, you've got to pull it back so it doesn't run in front of virtue. And maybe there is, again, a confession here about the pit of the thieves. Maybe there is a way in which the talent, the genius, ran in front of virtue. So he says, I do this because if some good star, ah, we're back to Brunetta Latini. Remember, follow your star. That's what Brunetta Latini says. Latini's sitting right behind this. In fact, we'll talk more about this in the future. Latini sits here in the eighth pit a lot. Well, we'll talk a lot more about this in the future. So if some good star or something even better has given me so much good. Interesting here, something even better has given me all that's good or so much good. Interesting that the poet pulls back from naming God. Is that because we're still in an infernal landscape? Is that because the question of where talent comes from is still open-ended? That's going to get answered big time in Purgatorio. But here, is that because it's still open-ended? Where do you get your talent from? (laughs) If you're a Christian, it has to come from God. There's no other answer, but maybe it comes in special ways. All that saved for Purgatorio. Anyway, something better has given me so much good, I won't dispossess myself of it. In other words, if I let my genius go out and run in front of virtue in some wild, capering, crazy way, then I'm going to just eventually ruin my talent. No matter if it's been given to me by the stars or something else, it, it is what is good in me, my talent, and and I could ruin it. I could, I, could, I could get rid of it. I could dispossess myself of it. That seems a huge assertion of how poetics work for Dante. Let's pull that up into the modern world. The notion here is that human suffering contains or disciplines talent. After all, what he says is that he's pulled his talent into the reins more than usual because of what he saw 
in that pit. And what we're going to see, you already know, is human suffering. It's been this way all through Inferno. Why should it be any different in the eighth pit? So there clearly is a way that human suffering should constrain or discipline talent. Let me put this in a more modern way. Understanding the human condition should put the limits on your art. Don't think of art as just endless self-expression. Think about your art, whether you paint or sculpt, whether you garden, whether you write. Think about how it works in terms of the cycles of human decay and suffering. I think about it all the time. For example, I have rather crazy gardens. They follow no set idea. I don't have any theory of gardening. I always tell my husband I can't afford a theory of gardening, so I don't follow one. They don't follow any theory of gardening. <laughs> Edith Wharton would hate me. My gardens are a bit overgrown and wild. I shouldn't say a bit. They're pretty much overgrown, and I like them that way. Why? Because the woman who basically put my life back together in Austin, Texas, was an artist. And she, too, was an avid gardener, and she taught me how to garden. And she believed that gardens should be riots, that they should just be a riot of color, of greens and flowers and different shades of green. And all of it in a riot together should just express sheer inescapable joy. I took that away from what she taught me, and she is long gone. Because of that, when I garden, I garden as a memento mori, as a remembrance of her. I mean, if you want to know this whole story, it's told in my memoir bookmarked, but you don't have to read that. That's what this passage is saying. I looked down. It was horrible. It made me so sad at what I saw. It still makes me sad now. And that sadness informs how I write. And in fact, that sad helps me from letting my talent get out of control. It keeps it in, in a boundary so that it doesn't just leap out and become, shall we say, the chaos of the pit of the thieves in which the talent seems to be running out of control. Let's finish off this passage. He says, so that I'm going to do this so that it won't run where virtue doesn't lead it, as I said, so that if some good star or something even better has given me so much good, I won't dispossess myself of it. Is he talking here about what's ahead of us or is he talking about what's really far ahead of us? There, I have to kind of tell you a little bit of the plot here. We're about to run into Ulysses, or Odysseus, as you might know him, but Ulysses here in comedy, as he's so named. The question is, is the poet talking about Ulysses, that I've got to discipline my talent so that it doesn't run in front of virtue, so that I can tell the story of Ulysses that I'm about to tell? Or I've got to make sure that my genius, my talent, is reined in in some way because what really is sitting in front of us is purgatory, which is all about putting ropes and limits on things. Trust me, when we get to Purgatorio, we're going to talk a lot about limits, limits of poetry, limits of expression, limits of theology, even limits of art which is so much the discussion in Purgatorio. There is a question here. Is he talking about 
reining in the talent so it doesn't run out of control because he's looking ahead at Ulysses or because he's looking ahead at Purgatory because we've had this reference to the stairs and I told you that Mount Purgatory is going to function gigantically. <laughs> There's a pun for you. Function gigantically in the narrative ahead of us. Because of all of that, which way is he looking? Or is it both at the same time? Maybe with Dante, it's always both. So that's our little short passage on this poetic interlude that leads us out of one pit and into the other, in which we get a glimpse of how the poet Dante, at least at this moment of writing comedy, envisions the process of how to write comedy. Let me say that this is not the final answer. There are passages ahead of us in comedy in which we will discover other theories about how to write comedy. But right now, after the Pit of the Thieves, it seems like we've come upon a little poetic theory. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, come back. we got to get on to this pit itself and this sinner, Ulysses, who is an amazing figure. No piece of Inferno has more written about it than the back half of the 26th canto when Ulysses speaks. We got to get there and take it on ourselves. We're walking slowly with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm.